Welcome to The Jury Is Out, a podcast for trial attorneys who want to sharpen their skills and better serve their clients. Your co-hosts are John Simon, founder of the Simon Law Firm, and St. Louis attorney Eric Veith. Welcome again to The Jury Is Out. We're all busy and you might have missed some of our podcasts. Here's one of our favorites. I hope you enjoy it. We'll be back with a new episode of The Jury Is Out next Wednesday. Welcome to The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Beath. And this is John Simon. Today we're here with the Honorable Glenn Norton. And Judge, not to put pressure on you, but you're our first guest. Well, it's an honor to be here. Thank you. Currently, I know you as a retired appellate judge and a well-regarded arbitrator, but you've worn many hats over the years. In fact, you've done about as many things, it seems, from your resume as one can do with a law license. I'm just wondering if you want to look back and Talk about a couple of things that you enjoyed, especially in your career. Got out of law school, coming from North Missouri and growing up on a farm and wanting to go back into that part of the state and practice and got hired by a lawyer in New London, Missouri, near Hannibal named John Briscoe, former president of the Missouri Bar Association and a well-known lawyer up there. He contacted me. They were actually advertising for a lawyer after my second year. And I got a hold of them and I said, look, you're a perfect fit for me. Can I talk to you? And they interviewed me and said they would wait if I would commit. So I had, I was the first one to have a job in my law school class. I think I spent more time in the bar across the street than in the library of my third year of law school, but uh, <laughs> I, I knew I had a job. So I, I was happy about that. Practiced there for 10 years, loved being in the courtroom. And so decided that I would take a stab at uh, running for office. Judges are elected in the country. And so I ran against an 18 year incumbent and was lucky enough to get elected. And so I left, took a chance and left a a successful practice to become a judge, uh, loved it, loved being a trial judge. And so was doing that, applied for the Court of Appeals a couple of times, was a finalist twice, and was, uh, was not selected either of those times when I was one of the three finalists. And then a friend of mine got elected governor, uh, Bob Holden, a really special guy, someone that cares deeply about people and about this state. And he got elected governor, and he, he and his wife asked me to come to Jefferson City and have dinner with them before he went into the governor's mansion and I knew I was in trouble and I did. And he asked me to leave the bench and be his lawyer in the Capitol. And so I did that. I was there for two legislative sessions. It was an unbelievable experience for me. It's a young person's game and uh, I was not one of the young people. And so uh, it's 20 hours a day and on call constantly, but still it was a wonderful experience. And then he appointed me to the court of appeals in 2002. Uh, and I served there then until February 1 of 2015. So I have moved around a lot, so I've had a lot of great experiences. I've taken a number of chances on, on new opportunities and doing something different, and one of the greatest and most fortunate things that ever happened to me is that each time it worked out uh, remarkably well for me. Well, thank you for agreeing to be with us to discuss two topics, and today we're going to talk about mediation. But as a little wrinkle before we get into that, you probably know this. You're often mentioned by lawyers around the community as someone who is almost expected to liven up a conversation with a little bit of humor, even serious conversations. Do you agree with that? My wife's not quite so complimentary about it. Uh, she she likes to say that I don't have a filter. If I think something, I say it. And uh, you never have to wonder what's in my mind because it's going to come out of my mouth. And fortunately, folks laugh. I was never quite sure over the 20 years that I was on the bench if they were laughing because I was funny or because I was a judge and they felt like they should laugh at my comments. Uh, they continue to kind of laugh from time to time. So I get a kick out of that and have a lot of fun with that and hope that it's appropriate when possible, yes. To what extent do you consciously use humor to get things done in your work? 
there's never a moment that I say I need to tell a joke here or a story to try to ease the tension or to make things go more smoothly. It, it really is something that just happens from time to time to break the tension or whatever. So it does happen. I've got some things and some anecdotes that I use from time to time in certain situations, but you've got to pick the right spot. Are you willing to share a few comedians or comedy shows that you find especially good? My wife and I have seen every Seinfeld episode more than once. Um, had the DVD, had the complete set. We love them. There is a line for any moment in life from the Seinfeld episodes. And we use those regularly. And we get a big kick out of those. The one I use a lot was when Kramer got burned by the hot coffee. And his lawyer, Jackie Charles, was representing him. And they were negotiating a settlement. And the coffee company decided that they were going to offer him $25,000 and, co and coffee for life. When they went into Kramer, they said, Mr. Kramer, we're prepared to offer you coffee for life. And, and he said, I'll take it. <laughs> and his lawyer said, what just happened? And I tell that story sometimes in mediation because sometimes folks are just either a little too eager to jump on an offer or whatever. And so I like to use that line. And I had a, a lady whose name I wouldn't mention, of course, who fell at a casino one time. And at some point during the day, she made the comment, she just wanted this over because she wanted to be able to go back to the casino and gamble again because her lawyer wouldn't let her go back there while the case was pending. <laughs> I went in the casino room and I said, I think y'all would offer her some match play chips and some comp room and stuff. And they did. And she, she was ready to give it up immediately. And I said, wait a minute, let me tell you the Jackie Childs and Kramer story because you're getting ready to give away too much. So sometimes things just come up that, that kind of come to your mind and, and sometimes they're funny and sometimes they're not. And so those kinds of things help explain it to people in a way that they'll understand the, the, the kind of the difficulty that can come up in mediation. When I can communicate with them at their level and, and make sure they understand that I don't think I'm anything special and I'm there to help them, I can just see the tension kind of go out of them a little bit, and I know that's what's going to help. So I think it's a combination of a number of different skills that I really do almost every day, and I'm, I mediate every day. I'm booked every day until the end of the year. Sitting you know, here. Judge, we were just commenting on that before you walked in the room, and I'm sure you know this. I think you're one of the most in-demand mediators in this area, not, not just this area, probably in the state of Missouri. We try to get you whenever we can. Appreciate that. And I've never had anybody that both sides want you. And, you know, I was thinking about what makes you good. What makes a really good mediator? And, and I think you hit it right on the head. And that is, number one, it's top of the list. It's got to be somebody that knows what they're talking about, credibility. And I think that only comes from background, life experience, and not only trying cases yourself, but being a trial judge, being an appellate judge, you've seen every aspect of it on all sides so that when you come into a room, and you say, here's what I think about this, it means something to the parties. And I think the other thing too, and I don't know what you think about this, if you agree or not, but I think the ability to tell somebody what they don't want to hear is one of the most important things for a mediator. I think you're exactly right. I think with, with lawyers, you can get right to the heart of it much more quickly than you can with lay people. You know, I never give them that bad news or that here's your, here's your bad problem until I know I've got their trust and respect. And I spend a lot of time making sure they understand that I, I care about what they've been through and try to work on those things. And, and so a lot of that's just about taking the time. But you're right. You've got to be able to do that, but you've got to have something behind it. So just let me, let me ask you this. I, in my experience, my success rate in a mediation corresponds dramatically with how far I am from the trial setting. Is that your experience generally? 
It depends on the size of the case. I think that uh, the, most of the cases that you've had that I've seen that are larger cases or more traumatic injuries or cases where folks are going to have a claim that's significantly higher perhaps than your normal automobile accident, which I get fewer of those all the time. I think those cases need to be closer to trial. They need to be fully worked up. All the doctors and all the experts need to have been deposed so that there aren't a lot of questions out there and you can get down to the brass tacks. I think on a smaller case where the recovery is going to be smaller, I think early mediation does work more, far more often than people realize because you're in a case where the recovery is going to be smaller and so you're better off to get that recovery in the bank before you've spent a bunch of money on the case. You know, $50,000 worth of expenses on a $150,000 case is a ton. $50,000 on a, on a $2 million case is nothing. And so that's the motivation to do it early a lot of times. And Judge, one of the things that, that I've tried before, I've seen it done, and, and I just want to bounce it off you and see what you think about whether it's productive or not, I've had situations where I'm, I'm asked to mediate a case and I'm a little suspect because of the timing or whatever. And so I request or even insist that the other side put up an offer before we go into the mediation, sort of in good faith. What do you think about that generally? Is it counterproductive? No, I think it's absolutely imperative. I don't think it happens often enough. Part of the, the consequence or the product of of having a mediation every day is, is that I approach it the way we all did law school exams. And that was, you didn't look at tomorrow's exam until you finished today's because you, you had to get, that's what you had to work with. So I finished my mediation today. I could not tell you what my case tomorrow is about yet. I'll find that out this evening. I often open that up and I see that there has not been a demand made or an offer back and forth. And I'm like, dang it. If I was looking ahead of two or three days, I would contact the lawyers and say, look, make a demand and make an, an offer. So I think it's a good thing to do. I think you should have both a demand and an offer back and forth. Otherwise, we get there and you make a demand that the other side thinks is so terribly high. And we spend all morning discussing how crazy that is or how low their offer is in response. And a lot of plaintiff's lawyers will say to the insurance company or the corporate defendant, I won't go until you make me an offer of at least X dollars so that I know you're serious. I see that happen. I see the defendant make that offer and then show up the next day and start increasing it by 5,000 bucks a pop. In other words, they, they put all their money on the table to start and they've gotten to the table and we're right back the same place we would have been before. So I think you need a demand and an offer. I think it's productive every time because then that way, if they make you a $10,000 offer on a case that you, you think is worth 4 million bucks, you don't take one of my days. That's what you make sure you're at least close to the same page. I was going to ask you what makes for a good mediation. In other words, one that's efficient and people walk away happy with the settlement. It's amazing how many things in the law follow similar tracks. And I think that one of the things that mediation has in it that is no different than trying a case or, or anything else in the law, and that is preparation is absolutely critical and will always be the key. And I think there are lawyers who come who have not spent enough time getting the case worked up and ready. They're not ready to answer the tough questions when I pose them. And so preparation is so important. Client preparation is also unbelievably important. I get lawyers that come in and, and we sit down and I'll say at some point, okay, Madam Plaintiff's Lawyer, have you talked to your client about what your end game is going to look like if we can get there sometime today? And they haven't even had a, had a conversation about what the case might be worth at some point. Well, they're going to have to at some moment and depending on what they do. And then once in a while, the lawyers will say, well, gosh, I thought the case was worth X. My client thinks it's worth 10 times that. And they didn't find that out until we're at the mediation. Well, that's a lack of client preparation. I think it eliminates stress in the clients if they know what's happening when they get there. And so I think they should be told more about the process. I try to do that myself and make sure they know. But I think it's all about the preparation. I think it goes far, far better. 
people get there and say, well, I see you've got some medical liens that are going to need to be paid out of your settlement if we, if we have one, if we reach a settlement today. Have you been in touch with the lien holders to see what kind of, not be able to count? It's amazing to me how many times the, the lawyer will say, well, not yet. I've got to wait till we get the a number. Well, that means we're probably not going to get the case done that day. I call certain documents the kill documents or the, the, the death sentence documents in cases. If you've got those documents, whether they're medical records that are good or, or particularly bad, have those in your hand when you come to the mediation. Be prepared with that ammunition because I need that help from both sides to carry that back and forth. A lot of it I may have picked up on my own, but you've got to bring me those kill shot moments that you've got so that I can have them. Give them to me early in the day. There's nothing that's more sweeter music to my ears than a lawyer who says, judge, here's two or three things I want you to have in your arsenal. Use them when you think it's right. Then I can use that to play. And so I think that that's one of the things I would let young lawyers know. The other thing I would say is if you do not have a mediator who you have absolute trust in, then you've got the wrong mediator. So what I mean by that is you've got to tell them what's going on. You've got to be completely open with them. And if you are in a, in a situation where you feel like you've got to guard what you say or be careful how you say it, then you've got the wrong person. I tell both sides in, in the mediation in the morning during the opening session, when I, I talk a little bit about myself, about my background and so forth. I tell them that confidentiality is the most important piece of this and my credibility means everything to me. And I will not tell anything that you tell me to the other side. I give you my word on that. Uh, St. Louis is not a big city. The legal community is not a huge group of people. We all know each other. We all talk. And if I talk out of school one time on something someone's told me, I'll never get called again. And so you can trust me, and we, and we go through that. But I think being candid, having a mediator you can trust it would be the number one rule. We don't do this enough, but we'll settle a case, and then we're going back and forth or waiting three or four weeks to get the release. And, and I've seen attorneys, and I think we've done it a few times, where I've actually received a release from the defendant before we go into a mediation to look at a lot of times they have them with them. Yeah. I, I think it's a great idea and it's good to have it. Get those terms worked out. I mean, I've, I've seen cases where paper in the deal ends up taking as long as it took us to get the, the deal itself negotiated. Something that comes to mind when you say that is confidentiality. Yes. Is that something in your repertoire that you want to make sure the parties talk about it before they leave the table? Well, my experience has been, and the rule that I follow is, is as much as I can make rules anymore, is that if you want confidentiality, you better mention it while we're sitting there and not don't bring don't call tomorrow and say, oh, by the way, we want confidentiality. Well, that wasn't part of the deal. It's not part of the deal. And so I think it's something that comes up early on. Confidentiality has become such a, a vague word in terms of, you know, what does it really mean? And it kind of, it just depends on what the defendant really wants. Most of the time, they don't care if you say a trucking accident case that was settled for $750,000, period. But you start saying where it happened or what court it was pending in, then that's going to take a chance on disclosing where it is. So confidentiality is important. It's not imperative in every case, but certainly most of the time the defendants want confidentiality. How do you know when you get to the point where you're done? It's just you, you don't think it's going to – I mean, and I say that because you hear all the time, you see both sides sort of dragging their feet, nobody's moving, and you'll sit there for three or four hours. The parties really aren't getting close together. And yet at the end of the day, the case ends up getting settled and, and both parties made significant movement. It's tough on business people who are there as clients, especially small business owners who are accustomed to going nonstop all day and suddenly they're sitting there in that room going crazy. But I do think that there are times from both sides of the V where I see parties take a firm position and say, I'm not going to give, I'm not going to give, I'm not going to give until they find out that the other side's not going to give either. And then suddenly the case does get resolved. And so I think it does happen. 
I do a lot of mentoring. I have a lot of people shadow me. I do some teaching on mediation and the like. And the cardinal rule that I always tell all of them is that the neutral cannot be the one to ever stop the conversation. As long as they're, they're talking, even if it doesn't feel very productive, let them talk, let them go. I break that rule every week. Okay. And I, I'm guilty of that. And I admit it because once I realize that it's going, it's not going anywhere and it's not going to, then I'll say so and not make people sit there until five o'clock in the hopes that someone suddenly has a complete change of mind. And I can find that out. I, you know, pretty quickly, you know, if I ever got them down to X, is there a chance I could get you there? Well, then I find that there's a Delta within which neither side is ever going to go in that middle. Then, you know, it's not going to happen if you believe them. Now I oftentimes will say before I'm going in the other room and tell them that you're never going to take as low as X. I want to make sure I'm right about that because I don't want to lose. I don't want to lose it. If there's a chance, I've had litigants not settle a case, leave, go to their car in the parking lot, sit in their car for a few minutes, come back inside and say, I've changed my mind. I want to, I wanted to settle the deal. And one gentleman went outside and called his wife and she told him to get back in there and take, <laughs> take the settlement. And, uh, of course he dutifully came back in. Judge, one of the things that, and it happened with the mediation that I had with you, you said this before and I like it, makes sense. You really want to work to get each of the parties where they're willing to go. And then once you do that, that's really when the mediation starts, right? That's exactly right. I'm not going to get you outside your comfort zone until I've got you firmly in it. And that's what you have to do. And that's what I try to do. And I don't make any bones about it. As you know, I, I tell everyone that no matter how we're negotiating, I, I tell everyone what I'm trying to do is get everybody to the point that I can say, people were really, were this close and this isn't going to get done. How foolish is this? And so that's, that's exactly the way I do it. I'm an aggressive mediator. I think everyone knows that I am busy. Part of the, part of that has to do with the other thing that people want in a mediator. And that's somebody that can close a deal. And I think that's my reputation is as I often like to say, and, and you guys know that I talk about Colleen a lot as, as uh, your listeners may not know, my wife's been a judge for 25 years. She's now the chief judge of the Missouri Court of Appeals, where I used to be. We're the luckiest people in the world. But she reminds me a lot of mornings as I'm leaving the house that I still have a lot of judge in me. And I know what she means. I can be pushy. I can be a little aggressive. But I think that's part of what helps get cases resolved. I couldn't agree with you more. And like I said, I've been, I've been on both sides of it. When I've got a problem in my case, I know what that problem is. And when the mediator comes in at, at the right moment, mm -hmm. when we're close, and it's something that looks like it might be getting done, and at that point when the mediator comes in and says, well, what about this? Aren't you concerned about this? And of course, they don't even need to say that. I'm already thinking about it. But you got to be able to tell people something that they don't want to hear. I did the settlement docket at the Court of Appeals for almost five years before I left there in 2015. And I think I learned more about mediating in that unusual context because one side already had a victory at, at trial. And obviously, we know how often the respondent wins on appeal, I mean, most of the time. So the appellant's there with a victory, and I had to be able to create risk for them in order to get them to have any interest in settling the case. And it's that way in every one of the cases. You've got to be able to create some risk and tell them, here's the risk you're running if you don't get this case resolved. So, Judge, let me ask you this. How is the dynamic different? in a case that's already been tried, meeting a case that's already been tried, I would think the facts have been decided and you've got a verdict. I mean, wouldn't it be easier to, to resolve that case? It's hard to get the respondent, the winner at trial, it's hard to get them to give. I got a judgment for half a million dollars. Why should I take 400000 today when all I've got to do is see this appeal through and I will have a final judgment for half a million? So that's the difficulty of getting that done is because the side that won at trial is Digging carrying in. a big stick. Yeah and, yeah, and for good reason most of the time. They, had, they forced them to go through a trial and they exactly. took the risk. And, right. And, now uh, you'll be to take – and it's amazing how often I would say 
if I get you 350 or 400 on that 500, they offered us that before trial. We turned it down. Why would we take it now? I know you know Henry uh, Mangini, mm-hmm. and Henry did a lot of mediations before he retired. And I like the story that he would tell in, in almost every mediation. He tells a story about a case that he tried, and he was defending. He was representing the defendant in the case, and he got hit for 85, I think it was a defamation case. He got hit for $85 million. Went up on appeal, got it flipped. Then he went back, same facts, same case, same parties, retried it, and got $85,000 judgment against him. And he would tell that story, and, and I'd heard it several times, but the clients in that room that hadn't heard that story, their mouths would drop open like, what? I couldn't think of a, a more effective story to let people appreciate what risk is. With the you unpredict- unpredictability, yeah, unpredictability of trial. Absolutely, unpredictability. In the mediations I've attended, I think I've admired uh, mediators who are aware of both tracks. I think of it as two parallel tracks. One would be the legal track, the legal analysis being done by the mediator. But it also seems like good mediators are good psychologists too. And they're trying to loosen up people who are all tight with fear maybe or stress. Do you find yourself wearing that hat or do you find yourself needing to be a cheerleader to keep keep the thing going? In other words, the stuff beyond the legal analysis. Yeah, and I think that part of it is more important than the legal analysis. I often have lawyers that have a completely different opinion about an issue of law, and they want me to convince the other side that they're wrong. And I said, look, the, they've been researching this and working this up for two years. They've told their client, this is the law on this. You expect me to convince them they've been wrong for two years in an hour? Not going to happen. It's not going to happen. And so it's very difficult. Now, if they, if they have a question in their mind, then maybe it, it can work. The psychology part of it and, and the, the ability to work with people, kind of that on the ground, almost a social interaction with them is hugely important, especially in, in the tragic cases where people have lost a child and, and situations like that where uh, so many of the conversations that we have regularly in mediations when I talk about how great it would be to get closure on this case for someone, you can't use those lines when someone's lost a child. And so those cases are very, very difficult, and you have to be very careful about the language you use. But I, I go so far, and, and the defense in, in the injury cases and in these tragic cases know that I do this, and so it's not like there's anything wrong with it. But I tell these folks, say, look, they say the mediators are neutral, but I'm here for you. I'm not neutral. You're the only people in this building I care about today because you've had a loss, and, and that doesn't mean I'm going to get the case resolved for you, but I, it means that when you leave here today, that I promise you you're going to know that I worked hard to try to get this done and make sure you were treated fairly. And I think they listen to that, and they hear that when I'm speaking directly to them. I've got a line I use to start off a lot of times with folks. I, I grew up from working people. My dad's family were all farmers, and my mom's family were all coal miners. And when I was young, my two brothers and I would be asleep. Dad would flip the light on. It's still dark outside. He said, let's hit it, and we're outside in five minutes, filling the tractors with fuel, getting ready to go to work, and start working for the day. And then at some point during the mid-morning, we'd stop and say, How'd you sleep last night or you know, how good morning. you doing? Good morning. <laughs> but you didn't start off with the pleasantries because we were burning daylight. And I tell that exact story to folks and I say, I, and so I apologize for diving into this and just starting working. I still blame my father for that work ethic, but it's what I do. But I want to stop for a minute and let you know that I realize you've been through a tragedy here that no family should have to suffer. And by taking that time with them and making sure they know that I can personalize that, I start gaining their confidence and their trust early on. And I mean it. You don't fool people in that setting. Judge, one of the other things that I do almost exclusively plaintiff's work, and so I'm representing families with devastating injuries, catastrophic injury, or losing a family member, 
And just as attorneys and mediators, we don't realize it a lot because we see it so much, but you're bringing this family that maybe lost a child into a room and the whole process of putting a value on that. and, And I've seen you address that in almost every case that I've had where it need to be addressed, where acknowledging that the loss is far greater than whatever, whatever could be paid because right. it's just, there, there's no real price that you can put on it, but letting the plaintiffs or the plaintiff's family understand that what we're doing there is, is limited. I apologize to them oftentimes and tell them that, that I want to uh, ask them to forgive me in advance for spending all day talking about what the dollar amount value was for the person they've lost because there is no such thing because suddenly we're talking about it like we're doing a business transaction and it's not that for them. And I think you cannot be too open. You cannot be too candid with them. They understand it. They know where they are. They know they're in a bad place. I also believe that's true with folks who not in necessarily the tragic cases, but for litigants or people who have criminal histories or have drug problems within their family, have issues with their cases. You've got to talk to them about those things. I don't beat around the bush with the, about those things. I tell them, look, I, I used to be a judge, but I'm not judging you here today, okay? Every family has difficulties. Every single family has difficulties. Your difficulties are going to be a factor in this case. Well, they know it. They're not surprised to hear about it, and, and they're happy to talk about it. So I, I think there are a lot of those things you've just got to address them, but again, the real key is being able to do it in a way that's patient and easy and be able to listen to them and let them talk too, because that's so important. I have two observations about timing that I'd like to get your reaction to. Number one is it seems like a lot of mediations go very slowly in the morning and really nothing much is happening until like two in the afternoon. And then it seems like hungry stomachs take over about five o'clock and things start getting done if you're, if you're close enough. What are your thoughts for changing or making things more productive? When I first started mediating full time after leaving the bench, I had many of them that went into the evening and I would comment all the time that it's amazing how as we got close to dinner time or someone having a flight they had to catch or whatever, how things would pick up pretty quickly and then that seemed to motivate people. I don't have that happen that way as much anymore because I'm more likely to have a mediation done, settled and over by three o'clock and not feel like I've wasted the morning. And part of that I think is the fact that I just get right in there and go and I don't I'm not gonna give them the opportunity. You know, I've got a rule. Your first couple of moves in the mediation in terms of the offers that you're making back and forth are yours and yours alone, and I will not dabble in them. I will not fuss at you about them. I may, may tell you that I think it's, it's too low, whatever. But after we've got a couple of those on the table, I'm going to start telling you if I think you're not doing enough because I want to move that case, and I'm not going to let it bog down. We're not going to stand around eating candy, and we don't show up the first thing at, at, in the morning and decide what we're going to have for lunch. It's not a social event. It's a business transaction. Let's get this done. So I, I feel like I'm more productive now because of that. And I think a lot of it has to do with the, the tempo and the attitude that I have as the neutral. If they perceive that I am working, that I'm going back and forth, I'm not just gone for an hour at a time doing nothing, I think they work too. And I think people kind of buy into that idea. So, Judge, one of the things I get real aggravated with is I'll be asked to go to a mediation, and I don't take that lightly. Some cases we do, some cases we don't. And if I personally don't think that that case is going to get resolved, I won't even advise the client to go to mediation. But most of the time, they'll get a demand before the mediation. And so they may have had this demand for at least a week or two or maybe even a month. And we will go to the mediation and sit there for an hour and a half before we get an initial response to a demand that they've had for 30 days. I don't know what they're trying to accomplish with that other than getting everybody pissed off and uh, 
Yeah. You know, it, it's just not a good start. Exactly. Now, I think from the insurance company, corporate side, the business side, the lawyers that are representing those folks are doing repeat business with them. They want to get hired again on the next case. And so they are operating and handling that defense in the way the client is dictating they do it. And if the client has told them, we'll talk about that when we get there, then that's what happens. And so I don't fuss at the lawyers too much about that because if the client says, we'll figure that out when we get to the mediation, then that's what's going to happen. And it's the client making that decision. So I cut them a little bit of slack, but it's very frustrating to get started that way. And it happens. It sure does. I am very careful to message the same in both rooms. I don't tell you one thing, Eric, that I wouldn't want John to know I've told you. I've had mediators who have said, oh, the lawyer's in your case, you're at the coffee pot talking. Well, so what? I'm telling them both the same things. I'm not lying to anybody, and I'm not going to, so I don't care if they talk. That's going to probably be productive. So I try to be very, very careful. So, Judge, is there a particular type of case that is more difficult to get resolved than others? like med mal, product liability, auto, auto accident? You know, I avoid domestic cases, divorces like the plague. But business disputes, the, the, the breakup of small businesses, are some of the most difficult because they are divorces. These are people who have known each other very well for many, many years. They've worked together. They've spent more time with each other in the business than they have with their spouses probably. And then when there's a breakup or a problem and something goes awry, the personalities get involved. And those cases can be so difficult because people lose all common sense. And I find myself time and time again saying to them what I say to corporate defendants in injury cases from time to time. I thought you were a business person. This is the stupidest business decision I've ever heard anybody make in my life. Now, as I told you, my wife tells me I still got some judge in me. I'm a little too direct, but I do. And I say those things. Now, I don't, that's not the first thing I say. I make sure I've gained their trust and they know that I'm, I mean well before I ever say a word, anything like that. And if you do that, they'll take it just fine and respect you and, and get it. But those cases can be the most difficult. The, the tragic injury, the loss of life, the, the, the mother with two young children who's lost her, her husband and the father, those cases are difficult just because they are so emotional and so, you know, they're just difficult for those reasons. But the, the business disputes can be the worst in terms of getting them done. So, Judge, you mentioned earlier about gaining confidence and trust as, as a mediator. And one of the things that you, you talked about looking you up, Googling you, getting information, I always spend a good deal of time before the day of the mediation talking to my client about who the mediator is and the mediator's background. And I think that helps oh, I do because too. I chose a mediator. I've chosen you to be the mediator because you're effective. And I've chosen you because I have confidence in you and I trust you. If I didn't, you wouldn't be mediating my case. And I want to help that process along too. I want to instill that confidence and trust in my clients before they walk in the door and before they even set eyes on you. It helps me so much when, when you do that and other lawyers do that because then the clients, it, it, I don't have to spend so much time making sure they do trust me and know me because they already do, or at least I've got a head start on that. But that is so important. If, if you're not going to have that, then you might as well have the receptionist taking the, the numbers back and forth. <laughs> much less expensive. Yeah. <laughs> So, Judge, here's something else. Years ago, almost every mediation, both sides would do an opening. And I don't remember, I don't think I've done one in the last couple years. What do you think about that? Is that productive, counterproductive? Why would you do one? Why wouldn't you do one? I hate them. I was at the Court of Appeals doing that settlement docket, and lawyers came in and wanted to do, make, make a, an opening statement. And it was an injury case. The plaintiff's lawyer made their statement. And, uh, and I think that's helpful. And, of course, they're talking to claims representatives and lawyers, and so, okay, fine. The defense attorney got up and started talking about how the accident was all the plaintiff's fault and how what they'd done wrong. And I could just see the plaintiff tensing up. By the time the, the lawyer was done talking, 
it was over. I had lost the room before I ever uttered a word. And so I'm kind of a control freak. And, and it's one of the ways that I get cases settled is I don't let anybody else run the room. And that's why I just don't do opening statements. Now, from time to time, lawyers will ask me if they can do them. On injury cases, I tell the defense side no. If they insist because they think they've got a theory they need to show, I will let them show it to the lawyer, but not to the plaintiff, unless the plaintiff agrees to it. I have plaintiffs who counsel who contact me in injury cases who will say something along these lines of, Judge, this is going to be my client's day in court in a, in a fashion. And they need someone to tell their story, and they need to hear it being told. And, and you're the only judge they will ever meet in their life, and they want to, they want to hear me tell their story to a judge, and they need to have that and, and I will let them do it. And I just tell the defense, you're going to sit through this. When it's over, you're going to say, thank you. We're sorry this happened. Hope we can get this resolved. And that's all you're going to say. So I tell the defense, grit your teeth and take it. Going back to something that we were talking about at the beginning, about how mediations are often more successful the closer we are to trial. There have been two times, and that's not very many. I've, I've done about 900 mediations now. There are two times that they were close to trial, and I went and asked a lawyer, once was the, the lawyer representing an injured party, once was the person representing the insurance company. And I went to them and asked them, I said, we're this close to trial. Could you do your opening statement now? They said, yeah. And I have them do it midday, two o'clock in the afternoon, because the other side was not getting it. And they need to hear what, what the jury's going to hear. And so I've done that two different times, and I, I think it's been effective. But that's me calling the shots on when the right time is to do it, and it was a very unusual circumstance. What is the overall success of mediations, not just yours, but mediators in all types of cases across the United States? Do you have a number or two that you can offer us about success rates? I think that just based on, on what I hear and what I see going on around me with the uh, other mediators, it may be 50 or 60%, maybe even a little better than that. I'd hate to speculate on that because I, I just don't know. I kept score for, on my own uh, until I got to 500 and my wife was making so much fun of me for keeping score on my cases, whether I win or lost, that I finally quit. But I kept score on my own because I, it meant something to me whether I was successful or not. But, but I was about 92%. When I got to 500 mediations, wow, I was that's about fantastic. 92% success. That is fantastic. Yeah, and I was very, I was very, and I was, and I was, I was proud of that. So earlier in my career, a lot of cases were not mediated. It's much more popular now. What, what do you think it is? It, can you articulate what it is about putting a third party in the room that helps people come together as opposed to two lawyers calling each other and settling a case or trying to settle a case in the old fashioned way. A couple of things that I think help a lot. One of course is, is that it's not just the lawyers who are there, but their clients are there. And this conversation isn't a, I call you and then you call your client. And then after you get with them, then you have to call me back and then it just takes forever. Time passes. I think that momentum of being able to carry the conversation back and forth, I think having that third-party neutral person convey the messages is always a more civil process, less likely for problems to arise. We all know from practicing that sometimes a message that a lawyer delivers is not well-received, whether it's because of the way it's received. Maybe there was a, a discovery squabble that happened in court or some things that were said that weren't complimentary during a motion hearing, and it carries over into the settlement context. Well, when you've got a third-party in there, those personalities go away and suddenly we're just talking about the case. And so I think having that third party there does help significantly because of that. Judge, thank you for joining us today to talk about mediation. This is a fascinating topic. Thank you very much, Judge. No, I, I Pre always, always appreciate spending time with you. Thanks, guys. You too. All right. See you next time. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with a new episode of The Jury Is Out next week.
The Jury Is Out is brought to you by The Simon Law Firm. Share your comments with John and Eric at comments at thejuryisout.law. And if you want a lively look at life and law from a female attorney's point of view, check out our Heels in the Courtroom podcast. And subscribe today, because the best lawyers never stop learning.